Good morning. Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And this morning we'll be continuing our study on the book of Timothy, the uh, letter to letter from Paul. And last week we learned from Sam about, um, so he gave us an introduction about Paul and Timothy and the characters. We learned about their close relationship, the, the, uh, that Timothy was considered a son in the faith, a true son in the faith. And Paul and Timothy had a great relationship. They had a, a very close relationship and they, they both worked together and served the Lord. Timothy was also spoken very highly of by the other churches, the churches at Lystra and Iconium. And we understand the involvement that Paul initially had at the church. And just as a brief introduction, again, we read this last week, but Paul is writing to Timothy um, to instruct the church on how, to, um, how the church at Ephesus should function. And we read the key to the book of Timothy, the whole key, the key to understanding the book is found in 1 Timothy 3.16. So read that really quick. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write to you so that you may know how to conduct yourself in the house of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Paul is explaining to Timothy very clearly, very plainly, this is how I want you to conduct yourself. The purpose for the letter, the outline, um, the, the outline of the book is to, or Paul is outlining in the book how he should conduct himself. And so there's great application, very great instruction that we can learn from this passage, from the whole book as a whole, because we are also a part of the church of God. So let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Sorry, verse 3. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Now the purpose of the command, commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor what the things which they affirm. But we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is anything, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Now let's take a look at verse three. Verse three, Paul starts off with a commandment to Timothy. He says, "As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus." Paul and Timothy had both traveled to Ephesus. And they spent about two years there preaching the gospel. And during their time, they had a big commotion at the Temple of Diana. Near the, after that happened, Paul, went over, Paul left and went to Macedonia. He departs and embraces the disciples and leaves to Macedonia. And I think at that time, that's when Paul told Timothy, he urged him personally to, to remain in Ephesus. And so Paul is now in his letter re-emphasizing that point. 
I want you to remain in Ephesus. And he says, he tells him why. He wants him to remain. He wants him to remain so that he may, you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. So Timothy was on a special assignment from Paul. There were some in Ephesus teaching false doctrine. There, it appears that false teachers had crept in among, from among the church, and they were people that were following after fables, endless genealogies, and those are characteristics of cults today. So it's a serious situation that he's going into. Now take a, take a minute and think for yourself. Um, put yourself in Timothy's shoes. Put yourself in Timothy's shoes. And you imagine you might say something like this. You know, I, I need to get out of here. This isn't good for me. I, need to, I don't want to be a part of this. You know, there's false teachers. There are people who are occupied with fables and they're just following after angelist genealogies. They're not following the word of God. They are teaching other doctrines. I don't want to be a part of this. This isn't good at all. I need to go somewhere else where they don't have so many problems. I need to get something. I want something simpler. I don't want to have to stand up to false teachers, and I don't want to have to tell them that they're doing the wrong thing. This is hard. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, if God has called you to a work, to a ministry, and times get tough, it can be so easy to become discouraged and to want to get out of there. You want to pack up your bags and leave. Sometimes it would be easier to do something that doesn't have so many issues. But Paul urges us, Timothy, stay exactly where you're at. Remain in Ephesus. Don't leave. In case he was th thinking about leaving, stay there. So that he can charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Timothy had a mission and a work that he needed to be done. And he needed to stand against the false teachers. It was, it's so crucial and so important that they stand against false doctrine and, and, and preach sound doctrine. Now, when, you talk, when we talk about false doctrine, there's two things that happen. One of two things can occur with false teaching. The first thing is that false teachers will take away from the truth, and the other thing is that they'll add to the truth. So the first thing is they take away from the truth, and Paul tells Timothy in the commands, to command they teach no other doctrine. They're taking away from the gospel. They're giving a gospel that's different, that's contrary to the one that was given to them at the beginning. They are taking the truth and replacing it with a lie. And this goes back to the Garden of Eden, where Satan deceived Eve by questioning the authority of God, the word of God, and saying, did he really say that? And causing doubt in uh, Eve. The best way to distinguish um, the best way to distinguish truth from falsehood is to know the truth. That is why it's critical and essential that we know and understand the word of God. It is the only way that we can identify by meditating and understanding and studying the scriptures where we can identify where false, teacher, well, false teachers and unsound doctrine. Secondly, false teachers will add to the truth. They add to the truth. This was the case in verse 4. If you look at verse 4, who are paying attention to fables and endless genealogies. Now, it's not really important to know exactly what those false those um, fables were or those um, endless genealogies really meant or what the purpose was, but um, it is important to know that they are adding to the truth, that they are, um, they are teaching false doctrine. And many false religions today do that. The Mormon church is an example of that. They invest a whole lot of time and money 
time and money into genealogies and, and uh, mapping out genealogies, and they believe that by doing that, they can have ancestors saved that are dead already, and it's, it's, it's not true, simply not true. First Timothy, um, later on in the First Timothy, he says, but reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself towards godliness. Paul ends the letter in First Timothy. At the very end of it, he says, O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradiction of what is falsely called knowledge. Paul is concerned about this because it doesn't bring about godly edification. It doesn't bring about godliness, and it causes people to doubt and to stray from the faith. So what is sound doctrine? Our faith is based on a specific message. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4, it says, For I delivered to you first of all that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. In Romans 10, 8, uh, 10 9 through 10, says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Any addition or subtraction from this message is another gospel. It is contrary to sound doctrine. People who alter this message in any form create another doctrine, another gospel, and they're destroying and undermining the word of God. And the outcome from contrary teaching only causes disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. There's no spiritual value from, that comes from these things. In verse 5, Paul says, Paul, Paul explains the purpose of the commandment. He says, the reason, this is the reason or the goal for the commandment. What is the commandment he's talking about? He is referring to the commandment or charge he gave to Timothy in verses 3 through 4. In verses 3 through 4, he says, Remain in Ephesus that you may charge or command some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. So the command or the charge, um, the commandment is the charge he gave a few verses before. And what is the purpose of the commandment? Why did he give him that commandment? The purpose is love. The, commandment, the purpose of the commandment is love. And he lists three things that produce this love. What is love? You know, we don't really understand love apart from, apart from God. We really don't understand what true love is. In 1 John 3.16, it says, by this, we know that, by this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also have to lay down our life for the brethren. We know love because God has demonstrated love to us already. And we need to do the same to others. It is love from a pure heart. It is love from a pure conscience, or from a good conscience, and it is love from a sincere faith. I think the best way to understand this is to look at, is to compare and contrast that to what false teachers do. First of all, false teachers will never produce this kind of love. They never will. Instead, they cause disputes, they cause doubting, and they cause people to stray from the faith. The following characteristics would never be true of a false teacher. So let's look at each one. So the first one is love from a pure heart. A pure heart is a clean heart. In Proverbs 4.23, it says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. 
And Luke 6.45 says, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth, um, brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A pure heart, from, a pure heart comes from those who have been cleansed from, the sin by, from their sin by faith in Jesus Christ. As a result of the new heart, love will overflow to God and to others. Correct teaching or sound doctrine produces love. A false teacher who teaches for his own gain, for his own purposes, to, for his own uh, motives, isn't teaching out of a pure heart. A sincere, pure heart will not teach believers another doctrine. So the second one is love from a good conscience. Love from a good conscience. Your conscience isn't violated when you do something right, but it is. But you do produce guilt when you do something wrong. It is essential to have a sensitive conscience. It is essential to have a, a good conscience towards God and towards men. Paul says in Acts when he was uh, tried in front of the council, he says to them, he was able to declare to the council and says that men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Paul had done nothing that violated his conscience towards God or towards men. In any of his preaching that he did, any of his teaching, Paul had a clear conscience. On the other hand, the false teachers have a corrupt conscience. Their conscience condemns them. It goes against the very things that you're teaching and doing. If, they, if you know what you're doing is violating the scripture, if it's violating your conscience, if you're living a life of sin, if you're, there, there is no way that you can have a good conscience before God. There can be a point where someone wears down their conscience so much that they become insensitive and they can ignore it. They can even, have, they can even go so far that they sear their own conscience. And we'll learn about that later in Timothy. Some, some have seared their conscience and can't, don't even have any guilt from anything they do. Their sensitivity towards sin diminishes completely and their hearts become hardened. The third one is love from sincere faith. Sincere faith literally means unhypocritical. It means that their faith is genuine. It is that they teach, it means that they, what they teach others they do themselves. They aren't wearing a mask. They aren't, they aren't portraying something, portraying one thing, and inside there's something different. You think of Disneyland, and you have all the characters that go around with costumes. You have Winnie the Pooh, and someone dressed up in there, and that character looks happy. He looks friendly. He looks, looks, um, looks like he's a loving guy. And on the inside, that person that's operating, that person that's um, in that character could be something completely different. could be an angry, bitter, resentful person. It's wearing a mask. It's, it's hypocritical. Their faith isn't the real deal. 1 Timothy 4.2 says, uh, there will be some from the, who will depart from the faith and speak lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. They aren't genuine or sincere in their faith. So these three characteristics can help us distinguish between false teachers and teachers of sound doctrine. They don't produce love because they are corrupt. They have a, because they have a, well, they don't produce love because they have a corrupt, unregenerate heart. 
They don't produce love because their conscience is insensitive and it's seared, some of them even seared. And they don't produce love because they have hypocritical faith. This is why they don't produce love. In Matthew 7:15, Jesus warns us against uh, false prophets. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. A false teacher will be known by their fruits, and they won't produce love. They'll produce doubts, and they'll produce disputes, just like it says in Timothy, the passage we were looking at. The sad news is that some of the members, some of the members in the church were the same ones causing the disputes and teachings. It appears that these men were put into positions of teaching and leadership, and they were led astray and have been causing doubts in the, um, among the believers. Their teachings were not out of love. Their teaching is in vain. It's, in, it's useless. It looks... Um, if you look at the next part, it says that they have, um, they have turned aside to idle talk. So they have rejected, they have, not, they have turned astray from the love that it talks about and have turned to idle talk. What is idle talk? It means uh, useless, means vain, without purpose or effect. Their teaching has no effect. And it just causes questioning. It causes um, disputes about things that really don't matter. Genealogies that go back, back, and back, and you can trace them and dispute. But, by the end, but at the end of the day, you're not going to have anything. What's going to come out of that? Their motivations, some of the motivations of false teachers are also selfish. You look at, um, uh, there's a progression of false teaching. In First Timothy, you'll see that scattered around um, through that book. And then the next, next, um, in the next book, for Second Timothy, you'll see that the progression gets worse. Where there is, in this passage, there were some, where there was a minority of false teaching, it becomes a majority in the next, next book. Their motivations are selfish and looking for earthly gain. So in Titus, it talks about false teaching as well. It says, for there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not, for the sake of dishonest gain. Their motives are purely just selfish. They're looking what they can get out of it. They're looking for, they're greedy for money. They're looking to cause people to believe what they say so they can make money. And there are a lot of, there are plenty of false teachers out there today who are in it for the money. They want fame, they want status. They want to say, look at me, I'm, I'm preaching. I'm teaching the law. That was a that was a high st- um, high status in the Jewish um, among the Jews at that time, but they are destructive and they are causing households to fall apart. They are leading them astray, household by household. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, we all we must also be watching and observant for people of this nature. We must be on guard at all times. 
We must ourselves be sound in the faith and doctrine. How do we do that? Well, I said earlier, we, we must study and know the word of God so we're able to recognize and rebuke false teaching. The best way to spot a counterfeit is to study the real thing. Study the word of God. We have it right here. False teacher won't necessarily be obvious. You know, you, might, you generally think a false teacher will come through the doors, speak up and say a bunch of lies and hypocrisy and just, and then, you know, you'll be confused and it will just, it will just make sense and you'll be like, okay, not make sense, but it will, you know, be very obvious and plain to all that this is a false teacher. Well, that can happen and it does happen, but that's not usually what happens all the time. They are very clever and crafty. These, from this letter, uh, from the letter to Titus, the one we read, it says that these false teachers are in the homes of believers and they're going from house to house to cause as many to stray. Even, the scripture even says that Lucifer, that Satan, himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. So Satan and his followers also look like angels of light. They might look like a believer. They might act like a believer, but inwardly they're not. And in Romans it says, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses, contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and, be, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. These, very, these men are very clever and crafty, and they may appear to be a true believer. Um, they talk very smoothly, and they, but they'll take away or add to the truth. They'll cause and place doubts in your mind about the gospel. Even while we're witnessing, we need to be on guard, too, to our friends and to our family who, who may cause, um, who may be among us, who be people that we know in our households and um, question whether why do you believe what you believe? Do you really believe that? You can't believe that God actually says that. But we must be in guard and know the truth. We should study, our, should study the word and memorize the scripture so that we can even give it a defense. You know, how, how many times have you been caught off guard not knowing the question, answer to a question? Well, anytime that happens, go back to the word of God and dig in and study and have an answer the next time. In verse 7, it says, so these, these men, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. They desire to be teachers of the law, but they have no clue what they're talking about. They don't know what they're saying. First of all, by teaching the law, they're actually putting Christians back under the Mosaic law. They teach that salvation by faith in Jesus Christ is good, but you also need to keep the law in order to really be saved. You must be circumcised, you must be baptized, you must, be, you must tithe, you must do all these things, and then you're really saved. But that is completely wrong. That is completely contrary to the gospel, which we believe. This is exactly what Paul was warning Timothy about. And they were adding to the gospel. Catholics falsely teach that salvation is by works. If you do enough good works, then your good works will outweigh your bad works. That's not how it works. 
Galatians 2.16 says clearly, no one can be made righteous through the law. No one can be made righteous through the law. The law doesn't save. It can't save. So then you might ask, well, what's the purpose of the law? Why do we have the law? What's, what's the good use of it? Should we just throw out the law? Well, no. The answer is found in verse 8. There is a proper use of the law. It says, verse 8, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is anything other, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. The law isn't bad, it is actually good, if you use it lawfully. Romans 7.12 says, Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. There isn't anything wrong with the law. What is the lawful use, then? The lawful use is to show that we are sinners. It is, to, it is to produce conviction of sin. The law is holy, God's righteous standard. The law was never meant as a means of salvation. It was, a, it was meant to show that you are condemned and that you need to be saved. A well-known preacher illustrated it this way. Um, <clears throat> he said the law is like a thermometer. When you're sick, you stick a thermometer in your mouth, and when you pull it out, you look at the temperature, and it says 105 degrees. Um, the thermometer shows you that you have a fever. It shows you that you're sick. But you can't just swallow the thermometer and get cured. <laughs> the, th the thermometer doesn't cure you. It can't cure you. It can only show you that you have a temperature. In the same way, the law shows you that you're, shows your sinfulness. It shows you that you are a sinner. But it isn't able to cure you. You can't keep the law. You can't keep the law or use the law to be saved. The law is actually, um, is actually a great tool for evangelism. Uh, when you witness to someone, you're sharing the gospel, you're sharing the good news. You're telling people that Jesus Christ has died on the cross for their sins and has paid the penalty. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. But if someone doesn't believe that they are a sinner, they're going to have no need for a savior. They need to see that they're a sinner and that they need to be saved from their sin. That is the purpose in using the law in evangelism. It is to show that they're a sinner. In Galatians 3, 24, it says, Therefore the law was our tutor to Christ. It brought us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Many of you might remember uh, years back when we did a, uh, when we went to, we did an outreach at the Zucchini Festival. We set up a booth and had a evangelistic literature, gospel, gospel literature in there. And we had a big sign above our booth that said, are you good enough to get to heaven? Take the test here. And the name of the test was called the good test. And it would take them through a series of questions going through the Ten Commandments to see if they are good enough to get to heaven, if they believe by their, that they can uh, earn their way to heaven. So I want to take you through that test today. The first question we would probably ask them, I don't know if I have the exact list, but if we would probably ask them this question. And I want you to answer those questions yourself. 
Would you consider yourself a good moral person? Most people would say yes. Of course I'm a good moral person. Most people tell me I'm good. Most people tell me, oh yeah, you're a good person. Um, what would you say? What would you say, that, what would you say to that question? The next question, do you believe the Ten Commandments are a good standard for, God, for righteousness? Again, most people would agree that the Ten Commandments are a good standard. Yet if you ask them what the Ten Commandments are, most people couldn't tell you one or two. <clears throat> and right there we would go through the Ten Commandments, we would uh, walk them through the Ten Commandments and ask them, based on that standard of righteousness, God's standard. So let's see how you, you stand up to God's standard of the law. The first one is, have you ever told a lie? Have you ever told a lie? Even just a white lie? Which is actually a lie. It's not a different category, it's actually a lie. <laughs> have you lied to your parents? Have you lied to your neighbor, to your boss? If you have, what does that make you? A liar. The next one, you shall not steal. Have you ever stolen anything? Even if it was something small and insignificant, have you ever stolen anything? Have you taken from your job? Have you stolen money from, uh, from your mom's purse? Have you cheated on your taxes? Have you ever downloaded, illegally downloaded copyrighted music or movies? Have you ever hopped between movies? If you have, you've stolen. Have you, so, have, you, have you stolen? If you have, what does that make you? A thief. And if you've told the truth on the first one, you're a lying thief. <laughs> the next one is, have you ever taken God's name in vain? Have you ever used God's name as a swear word? Have you ever used your creator's name as a filth word? If you have, what does that make you? A blasphemer. And if you've broken each one, then you're a lying, thieving blasphemer. The fifth commandment, <clears throat> fifth commandment says, honor your father and your mother. Have you ever disrespected your, disrespected, disobeyed, or dishonored your parents? If you're unsure of that one, I'm sure you can ask your parents and they can give you examples of that. If you have, you've dishonored your parents. The sixth commandment says, you shall not murder. Have you ever murdered? And most of you are like, well, nope, I'm, I'm good at that one. I would be in jail if I was murdering. So I, may, I passed one at least. Well, look at what Jesus says in Matthew 5.21. 20, you know, Anger in your heart is equivalent to murder. Listen to the strong words in, Matthew, in John, sorry, 1 John 3.15. It says, whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Have you ever hated someone? If you have, the Bible says you are a murderer. In our passage in Timothy, verse 9, it says that the law is for murderers of fathers and murderers of, of mothers, for manslayers. Have you ever hated your parents? If you have, then you're a murderer. Now, if you've not passed each one of those, the last couple commandments, you're a lying, thieving, blaspheming, dishonoring to parents, murderer. 
The seventh commandment says, you shall not commit adultery. Have you ever committed adultery? What is adultery? It is sex outside of, sex with someone that's not your husband or wife. Jesus said in Matthew, have you ever, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Have you ever lusted? If you have, you've committed adultery. In Timothy 1.10, it lists, it also lists fornication, which is sex before marriage, and it lists sodomy, sodomites, which is immoral same-sex relationships. These are all under the umbrella of adultery. Have you ever committed adultery? If you have, what does that make you? An adulterer. If you haven't been passing each one, then it makes you a lying, thieving, blasphemous, dishonoring to parents, murderous, adulterer. We'll stop there, and we've only covered six out of the Ten Commandments. How did you do? The rest of the, rest of the passage in 1 Timothy, <clears throat> in um, 9 through 10, it says, it basically sums up the Ten Commandments. Have you kept all the Ten Commandments? You may say, well, I've only lied, or maybe I've only broken one of them. I've only lied, I've only cheated, or I've only committed adultery, so I'm not that bad. I'm still a pretty good person. You should, I mean, I, and I do a lot of good things. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says in Revelation 21, 8, but the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexual immorals, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Those who have sinned, even once, will face hell in eternity forever. Will face an eternity in hell. God is just and holy and must judge all sin. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, the wages of sin is death. And Ezekiel says, the soul that sins shall die. The penalty attached to breaking God's law is death. The Bible is so clear. It says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is the bad news. But there is good news. We know that God is holy and just, but we also know that he is loving. He know, we know that he loves us. And we looked at that passage earlier. It says that by this we know love because he laid down his life for us. God became a man, took on human flesh, in the, form, in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life. And Jesus, through his life, fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. Jesus then went to the cross to die and suffer. And on that cross, he suffered and died and took our sin, mine and yours. He, pay, he paid the penalty for our sin. Jesus demonstrated his love toward us by laying down his life for us and so that we could be free of the penalty of sin, to be completely forgiven and to, be, um, and to have eternal life. John 3.16 says that, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. All it takes is faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. The good test asks, are you a good enough person? Are you good enough to get to heaven? The problem with that is there is nothing good in you. There's nothing that you can do to earn your salvation. Being a good person won't get you to heaven. 
Because there is none righteous. No, not one. The good news is that Jesus has done all the work for us already. And he died on the cross and paid for our sins in full. Repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. This is the good news. It's the gospel message which we believe. And the moment you trust Christ as your Savior, you're no longer under, the sin, under sin. You're no longer under the law, but you're under grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's nothing that you can do. It is the gift of God. God has freely given us eternal life. Not of works. It isn't from law-keeping. It isn't from doing good things. It isn't from being a good person. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. You cannot become a Christian by good works. Good, good works are a result or evidence of salvation. Believers are no longer under the curse of the law, but they live their life to God as a, um, out of love and out of gratitude for what he has done. Let's look at the last verse in, in 1 Timothy, verse 11. It says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. The gospel is a wonderful message, isn't it? It is indeed a glorious message to the people who realize they are sinners and in need of a savior. The gospel also brings glory to God because of what he has done. If you look at what he has done for us, we learn from the law that he is holy, just, and must judge sin. That's what he demands. Yet God stepped, out, stepped back and looked at our sin and said, I'm going to send my son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for us. And he showed us mercy and love and grace. And he paid for our sin. Let's look at the last part of what Paul says in the, in the last verse. He says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. It was committed to Paul's trust Paul was entrusted with the gospel. Timothy was also entrusted with the gospel. There was a serious weight to Paul and Timothy and to, to make sure that sound doctrine was preached and, that, and to, um, to rebuke any false teaching. He also, he also felt a, a special burden for the gospel and to share the good news with everyone. Paul wasn't ashamed of the gospel of Christ because he believed it was the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. As believers, the gospel is also committed to our trust. We must be able to identify false teaching and we must be able to go out into the world and to preach the gospel to everyone. That is, has been committed to our trust. It has been commanded of us. We must tell everybody the good news and get out of our comfort zone. And I want to leave this, uh, with this last thought, this last verse in Matthew. This is the words of Jesus. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of men. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the, the gospel message, Lord, that you've uh, committed to our trust. We pray that we would, uh, we would know the truth. We would be able to recognize and identify false teaching 
And Lord, that we wouldn't be caught up with um, any, uh, any strange doctrine, any false teaching, Lord, that we would, we would know the truth and that we wouldn't um, stray from it. Lord, I pray for anyone here that doesn't know you, that they would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the gospel and, and the, that we are no longer under the law, but we are under grace. Lord, we thank you for um, the truth of that. And we just pray that we would go out into all the world, Lord, and preach the gospel to everyone boldly and proclaim that. Lord, I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.